0: Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I want to begin by looking into several things we might understand by the term blessed. The term blessed has been popularized in our day and age by the prosperity gospel. About a year ago, I read an article in the New York Times by Kate Bowler, a historian of the American prosperity gospel. According to her brief and simple definition, The prosperity gospel is the belief that God grants health and wealth to those with the right kind of faith, and being blessed is a shorthand way of expressing this belief. However, this hardly makes any sense when we consider the Beatitudes. Those considered blessed by Jesus are the poor, and while he does promise them the kingdom of heaven, his rewards are not always offered in health and wealth or fulfilled on this earth." The Greek word translated here as blessed is makarios, and it could be translated as happy or fortunate. I, however, prefer the Hebrew and Spanish translation. The Hebrew word suggests a particular kind of joy, the joy a pilgrim enjoys on his way forward. The Spanish, bienaventurado, also suggests this kind of joy. The term itself is made up of two words, bien and aventurado, which literally translates into good and adventure. Those blessed by Jesus are those brave enough to follow Him on a good adventure. Jesus calls us to be poor in spirit, and oftentimes this is our first stumbling block in the adventure. How much must I leave behind? Like any adventure, packing light becomes the first challenge. In the spiritual journey, packing light is important because it is what allows us to depend on the Father. So the right question to ask is not, how much must I leave behind, but how much am I willing to depend on the Father? Poverty of spirit is being able to say with Jesus, all things have been handed over to me By my Father. Poverty in itself is not blessed, but it can become a blessing when it allows us to depend more radically on the Father. Therefore, being poor in spirit is being poor in self sufficiency. The Father's greatest desire is that we become more and more dependent on Him, as was the case with Jesus and all the saints. Unfortunately, we spend a great deal of our lives avoiding just that. I recently heard a talk right along these lines by Father Thomas Richter. It is titled, Trust in the Lord. Father Richter has a wonderful way of describing this invitation to dependence on the Father. He calls it the classroom of dependence. He says, every time we find ourselves in a situation we wish we could change, but are unable to change, the Father invites us into that classroom of dependence. A powerful classroom of dependence for me is the confessional, both as penitent and as confessor. Almost all my sins stem from anxiety. I'm narrow-minded, controlling, self-absorbed, defensive, emotionally distant, childish, and compulsive, when I am anxious. If you don't believe me, ask my parishioners. When I go to confession as a penitent, I come out of there with the firm resolve to heed the words of Jesus. Do not worry about your life. Look at the birds in the sky. They do not sow or reap. They gather nothing into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and all these things will be given you besides. My challenge is to exercise this radical trust whenever I find myself in a situation I wish I could change, but I'm unable to change. As a confessor, this radical dependence is so difficult because the people I serve are suffering tremendously in their lives. Like me, they suffer from anxiety although so often their anxiety seems to be more justifiable. I cannot tell you how many times I have felt powerless in the face of their struggles. I wish I could spend an hour with each person, and at times I have. I wish I could be a doctor, a social worker, a therapist, and a lawyer all at the same time, but I cannot, and I find myself radically depending on the Father. Blessed are they who mourn, for they will be comforted. I would like to share with you part of a poem that really captures the beauty of this beatitude. "'Tis a fearful thing to love what death can touch, a fearful thing to love, to hope, to dream, to be. "'Tis a human thing, love, a holy thing, to love what death has touched." Love is not for the faint of heart. Love is a risky venture because when we decide to love, we put ourselves in a vulnerable position. First, because to love in this world is to love someone who can be touched by suffering. And when they suffer, we will suffer too. Second, to love in this world is to risk the eventual loss of the beloved, which will inevitably morning. A particular mother comes to mind when I read this beatitude. I went to see her and her daughter at the hospital shortly after her daughter was diagnosed with a chronic illness. When I arrived, it was obvious the mother was very distressed. I listened to her and tried to comfort her, but then I invited them to pray. The mother quickly agreed, asking me to also bless a rosary she had brought with her. When she showed me the rosary, I immediately searched my pockets for the holy water and realized I didn't have it with me. Oh, well, I thought, I think I can still bless it. So I asked her to hold it in her hand while we all prayed. I lifted up to the Lord all the worries the mother had just poured out. And as I was doing so, she began to cry. Tears of sorrow rolled down her face, and as she moved her hand to wipe them away, they also covered her rosary. All of a sudden, it struck me. There's the holy water. Leaving the hospital, I reflected on how tears can bless any type of mourning. As it was the case when Jesus wept for his friend Lazarus, when tears are shed in hope, They are our best prayer and a manifestation of love. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the land. I've heard it said that the best commentary on the Beatitudes is the life of Christ. So I would like to use a powerful episode from the life of Jesus to explain what meekness entails. When Jesus was arrested One of those who accompanied Jesus put his hand to his sword, drew it, and struck the high priest's servant, caught enough his ear. Then Jesus said to him, Put your sword back into its sheath, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot call upon my Father, and He will not provide me at this moment with more than 12 legions of angels? I remember reading this passage a year ago at the Mount of Olives while I was on pilgrimage in Israel. It was very powerful. Given the emotions I was feeling at the time, I remember being angry at the level of violence and division I was hearing daily in the news, much of which had left visible traces in Jerusalem and which was still a looming threat on the horizon. My anger was farther exacerbated by the helplessness I felt as a poor pilgrim, what could I do? When I read this passage, the beauty of Christ's meekness shone brighter than ever before. To be meek is closely related, if not inclusive, of being humble, patient, nonviolent, and gentle. Their inheritance begins with the land of their own heart. Because as Thomas Kemp has put it in The Imitation of Christ, it is the man who has learnt the craft of suffering who really enjoys peace. He is his own master, and the world lies at his feet. He has Christ for his friend, and heaven for his patrimony. Blessed are they who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Righteousness here, as usually in Matthew, means doing the will of God. The physiological metaphors of hunger and thirst are very striking in this beatitude. A beautiful prayer before meals uses the same metaphors. I learned it from my brother-in-law a few years ago. It says, Lord, bless the food in which we are about to partake. Give something to eat to those who are hungry And always give us a hunger and thirst for righteousness. Hunger and thirst are physiological signs of vitality. And the same is true in the spiritual realm. Jesus gives us his thirst and hunger for doing the will of the Father. Because this is what it means to be spiritually alive. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. The best way to capture the meaning and extent of this beatitude is to reflect on the spiritual and corporal works of mercy, which among others include comforting, forgiving, bearing wrongs patiently, sheltering the homeless, visiting the sick, and burying the dead. The Catechism lists them all. Today, however, I would like to focus on only two. As a priest, Visiting the sick and burying the dead are great blessings, although I must admit I do not always welcome them as such. These works of mercy bring me face to face with my own mortality, which is not something easy to face. In one of his Wednesday audiences, Pope Francis expressed that our modern civilization tries to deny the reality of death to such an extent that when death finally comes, we have no way to find meaning in its midst. Death, Pope Francis said, is a mystery that manifests what he describes as the vaporous nature of life. It teaches us that our pride, anger, and hate are but mere vanities. Death also reminds us that we do not love enough and that we often forget what is essential in life. Blessed are the clean of heart For they will see God. Clean of heart is a phrase that has to be explained because sin is so often misunderstood as a stain. But as Pope Francis said in one of his daily homilies, sin is not a stain. If it was a stain, it would be enough to go to the cleaners and have it removed. The opposite of a clean heart is not a stained one, but one not centered on God. When I was in seminary, my rector invited us to do the following spiritual exercise. Think of your life as a drama playing itself out in a theater that we call This World. This drama should be a theodrama, that is, it should center on God. If the drama centers on you, it becomes an ego drama. The devil, of course, is perfectly happy with the drama centering on you because it keeps you from seeing God and it allows him to burn down the theater. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Thomas Merton wrote, instead of loving what you think is peace, love others and love God above all. And instead of hating the people you think are war makers, hate the appetites and the disorder in your own soul, which are the causes of war. If you love peace, then hate injustice, hate tyranny, hate greed. But hate those things in yourself, not in another. I cannot think of a better way to sum up what it is to be a peacemaker in today's world. And for that reason, I will say no more. Blessed are they who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they insult you and persecute you and utter every kind of evil against you falsely because of me. I have chosen to put these last two Beatitudes together because they're so similar. The beautiful thing to notice is that those being persecuted are people who have fallen in love with God. They have fallen in love with him, not in an abstract way but in the incarnational sense. They see God in Jesus. And today, we're called to see Jesus in all. The greatest blessing of those living the Beatitudes is having allowed themselves to fall in love. Blessed Stanley Rather, America's first martyr, was a man in love. In the short documentary shown before his beatification mass, his brother points out, that while Father Rother was away from Guatemala, he would spend a lot of time gazing out the door of their house in Oklahoma because he wanted to go back to his endangered flock. This gazing, staring out the door, is the behavior of a man in love. His cousin, Father Don Wolf, got it so right when he said, Stanley didn't go back to Guatemala to die. He went back to Guatemala to live, because that is where his heart was. Having reflected on each of the Beatitudes individually, I would like to close with a final point. In a journal of spirituality, the late Jack Guillet reminds us that the Beatitudes have meaning only when pronounced by Jesus. And they are true only because Jesus is there to bring the joy of which he speaks. Otherwise, they're only an insult to suffering. The presence of Jesus creates the joy of the unfortunate and the riches of the poor. Jesus is the fountain sealed of which the Song of Songs speaks. When he opens his mouth, the fountain is unsealed, and from it pour forth a love like no one had ever seen or heard before. And it is from this fountain that we receive the graces that allow us to live the Beatitudes. Of this fountain, the poet Germain Nouveau says, souls go to sate their thirst like camels.